0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Brigitte Le Normand about her recent book, Designing Tito's Capital, Urban Planning, Modernism, and Socialism in Belgrade, published by University of Pittsburgh Press. So welcome to New Books and East European Studies, Brigitte. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you about this book. I found the architectural history really interesting. And um, as a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself, how you became interested in architectural history, and also how you became interested in Yugoslavia.
1: Well, <clears throat> I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and I came of age at a time when um, Quebec was deciding whether it was going to stay in Canada um, and, um, and so perhaps it's not much of a surprise that uh, when uh, Yugoslavia's breakdown was um, in the news, um, that that really resonated with me. Um, and really, I think I decided to study Yugoslavia um, when I was doing my undergraduate, uh, and I simply um, I was studying Western Europe and and it had lost its novelty. I I had even done an exchange in Paris and somehow it seemed that everyone had already written everything there was to write about the French Revolution. So uh, I was, I was feeling adrift and I went to see a play about the war in Bosnia and um, there was something about that play that really kind of grabbed me from inside. And so like many of my peers, I became interested in Yugoslavia because of you know the way the spectacular way in which it fell apart. Um, as for um, the built environment, I I actually became interested in that um, partly through meeting my husband, who is an architect, um, who uh, introduced me to new ways of uh, looking at the built environment and, and thinking about the built environment and its connections to to society and to um, philosophy and to all kinds of um, interesting questions beyond the technical. Um, And it all just kind of came together when I started doing my PhD and uh, was looking for a project to work on. Um, And um, I had begun learning Serbo-Croatian a couple of years before, and it had taken me to Belgrade. And um, prior to Belgrade, I had started learning the language in Zagreb. And uh, Zagreb was very quaint and pretty, I had lovely Austro Hungarian architecture and squares, and uh, it was really a lovely place. And then I went to Belgrade. And Belgrade was a complete mess. Um, it was, you know, the, I mean, it was right after the end of the Milosevic regime. There was garbage in the streets, none of the infrastructure functioned properly, it was dirty, it was falling apart. Um, It had, you know, none of these charming, you know, (laughs) Austro-Hungarian buildings, and instead a lot of um, 20th century falling apart architecture. And yet there was something about Belgrade that I found really fascinating. There was a kind of a vibe about the city, um, a kind of excitement, a kind of dynamism that I hadn't found as much in Zagreb. And, uh, And so I decided that I wanted to get a better understanding of the built environment of this capital city of Yugoslavia.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think your book does tie all of those aspects in the um, economic and ideological and social um, questions that um, can be revealed through the um, built environment. So I look forward to talking about that with you as we go through the book. But before, uh, your book is really looking at the post-war reconstruction of Belgrade. So uh, just to get us started here, can you describe what Belgrade looked like before World War II and what it looked like at the end of the war?
1: Um, So Belgrade had really um, started to grow as an urban center in the late 19th century, um, partly as a result of Serbia achieving statehood, Um, And as a result of industrialization um, and um, so what you, what you had was a kind of a very narrow core um, which was concentrated next to the meeting of the Danube and the Sava river. And then um, a kind of a growing, sprawling, unregulated city um, that, um, that was being populated by rural dwellers who were coming to seek their fortune in the city. Um, And Um, things, things really kind of, um, didn't go very, they didn't go anywhere in terms of trying to come up with a comprehensive master plan for Belgrade, um, until the Second World War. Um, and Belgrade was bombed several times during the war, both by the Allies and by the Germans. And, um, and it was left in ruins to a large extent. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember the statistics. You have them in my book. Um, but, you know, um, the city needed to be completely rebuilt. It wasn't just the buildings that were destroyed or damaged, but the the infrastructure, so the tramways and the bridges and, and you know, everything um, needed to be rebuilt. Um, and um, this in a context of, you know, um, as with all the other East European states after the Second World War, a complete lack of resources. Um, and that's really the challenge that um, that planners were faced with when they had to kind of imagine a new socialist Yugoslavia um, raising like a phoenix from these ashes.
0: Mm-hmm. So just uh, for any of our listeners who aren't um, completely familiar with uh, the um, the communist takeover and how that came to be in Yugoslavia, although normally people listening to an East European um, podcast will know that, but because this is also arch- architectural history, we may have listeners who aren't quite as familiar. Give us a little bit of the history of, of the immediate post-war um, Yugoslavia and this new um, government that has uh, taken power and what, what kind of new socialist Yugoslavia they're trying to build.
1: Yeah, so um, Yugoslavia was one of the few East European states that was really um, liberated by its own domestic uh, partisan movement um, with the assistance of the Soviet Union, but not, uh, not to the same extent as in the rest of Eastern Europe. And so that, y- Yugoslavia was in a unique position in that sense, in that Tito and the partisans uh, controlled Yugoslavia, uh, not the Soviet Union. Um, and, um, Tito derived a great deal of legitimacy from this. Um, much of the legitimacy of the communists at the end of the second world war came from the fact that they had succeeded in liberating the country from the fascists, uh, the Italian fascists and the, the Nazi occupation, as well as, um, um, groups like, uh, the Ustasha that had been given control over, um, Croatian Bosnia during the war, um, The other thing that this, uh, the other reason that this is important, is because Tito, although he he very much um, he he uh, he endorsed the Soviet ideological and political and economic model, um, was a bit of a rogue actor. So he um, he had a different idea of. Um, when to begin the process of uh, revolution in Yugoslavia. In fact, he was more radical than Stalin was. um, And um, he also had uh, a different idea of Yugoslavia's regional role in relation to the Balkans. And all this came to a head um, in 1948 when the Soviet Union um, attempted to rein Yugoslavia in um, and eventually expelled Yugoslavia from uh, from the com- uh, the common form. Um, and um, this this was a very very difficult position for Yugoslavia to be in. Um, in fact, um, there was a kind of a um, a panic that this would result in. Um, the communists loyal to Stalin overthrowing Tito, and uh, Tito responded to this by purging the party of anyone that might have been suspected of sympathizing with the uh, um, the Inform uh, Bureau, and so um, this also meant that Yugoslavia was cut off from the Eastern Bloc in terms of economic assistance um, and uh, trade. Uh, and it meant that Yugoslavia was at risk of being invaded. Um, and what followed uh, after this um, is, first of all, a, a gradual understanding that the Soviet Union was not going to invade and that Yugoslavia was going to be allowed to be, you know, to to, to evolve independently And um, as well as a kind of a soul searching, right? Because if you get kicked out of the Eastern Bloc, you can't sort of affirm um, to 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 abide by the same ideology and principles. It's there's sort of a um, you know a a logical problem there. And they developed a kind of alternative um, uh, version of socialism called uh, self-management. Uh, which they proclaimed to be superior to the so-called bureau- bureaucratic form of socialism that had been uh, implemented in the, social, uh, in, in the Soviet Union. It was um, seen as being more authentic, more truly Marxist. Um, and uh, Yugoslavia began to craft uh, a, a new image of itself um, as, as being um, a kind of a, a more progressive socialist state um, and one that could provide its citizens with a better standard of living, um, and one that was uh, not allied with the Soviet Union, nor was it allied with the United States, so um, a kind of third way in the Cold War.
0: Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely talk about that history as we um, walk through the, the built environment in, in Belgrade and but it's good to have that overview of of where Yugoslavia was um, and, and where it start was starting to progress after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, so here they are, the war has ended. Um, Tito and uh, is and his and the partisans have taken control. And Belgrade is in ruins, uh, and they now have to come up with a, a way to rebuild the city. And you emphasize that the rebuilding of Belgrade was strongly influenced by broader trends in architecture and urban planning, um, not just um, you know, kind of internal um, uh, ideas about what the city should look like. So can you explain the modernist concepts of architecture and, in particular, the Athens Charter for us?
1: Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> um, the the period of industrialization in Europe had led to all kinds of um, problems with the the city. You know, the traditional medieval city um, and the city that had evolved in the early modern era wasn't really up to the challenges of the modern era. Um, one of the biggest challenges being, in fact, um, the automobile. Right. Um, cities were not built for automobile traffic. Um, there were also very serious problems with overcrowding and um, and sort of
0: uh,
1: hygiene uh, in the sense of access to um, sunlight and, and clean air and clean running water and that, that sort of thing. Um, in response to this, a growing number of um, architects who were um, who were modernist architects became preoccupied with trying to address these problems. And um, they, you know, they they began to come together um, informally, and then finally uh, developed a group uh, called the Congrès International d'Architecture Moderne, um, which, which people who speak English know as SIAM. Um, and in 1933, they um, they had a congress on this topic um, on a ship that um, that sailed on the Mediterranean. Um, and, uh, and traveled to Athens, and um, they debated what should be done about the traditional city. And they came up with a number of very, uh, you know, very radical propositions about what needed to be done, um, which included, um, first of all, doing away completely with the traditional city. It couldn't be fixed. It just was not adapted to the machine age. Um, and cities had to be built on a completely different model. So instead of having buildings that uh, would be along the perimeter of a sidewalk uh, around a city block, um, you should, in fact, kind of free buildings from, that, uh, from that, those constraints and situate them freely and surround them with greenery, right? And so everyone would have access to sunlight. Everyone would have access to clean air. And you wouldn't end up with these um, this courtyard housing, which was quite uh, common in Europe. You know where housing filled in uh, the insides of these uh, courtyards, and and people living in there lived in very unhealthy living conditions. Um, You could also harness the machine instead of of sort of fighting the machine. You could harness the machine to build high rises efficiently, Um, use a minimal uh, footprint. Um, and, um, and, and sort of industrialized construction so that, um, housing would cost a lot less. And therefore you'd be able to provide, uh, good housing to everyone. There were also prescriptions relating to the separation of different kinds of traffic. Um, there were all kinds of, um, of, of radical ideas about how cities should be changed. Um, and Le Corbusier, who, who was, uh, one of the main participants in this Congress on the ship, um took these ideas and wrote his own interpretation of them, which he published um, as the Athens Charter. And the Athens Charter was a, a kind of a manifesto. and it became a kind of a um, a, a summary or a catchword referring to this notion of completely transforming the city so that it was adequate for the modern age um, that um, that it could. Provide a, a, a good standard of living to all the urban inhabitants, um, and um, and that you know that this was a kind of a program that would be that that would be championed and implemented um, by architects and urban planners around the world. Not so much in the interwar period, but particularly after the Second World War, when in fact the devastation of the war seemed to provide an opportunity to
0: start over. Mm -hmm. And so that was certainly true in Belgrade. And so architects and planners such as uh, Nikola Dobrovich found the modernist concepts appealing not just because of the reasons you gave, but also because they felt like they fit in with this new socialist Yugoslavia. So can you talk more about that, about how the modernist um, was seen as being ideologically congruent with this new Yugoslavia?
1: So modernism um, per se was not um, was you know there was a there was a conscious decision by the modernist movement to distance themselves from any ideological program. They wanted this to be something that any state could implement, that any authority could implement. There was definitely a sense that this a project on this scale would require the involvement of uh, of the state. Um, But they you know in the kind of fraught conditions of the interwar period, the very politically divisive. Uh, conditions, they decided to distance themselves from any politics. However, in Yugoslavia after the Second World War, in terms of um, the, the the partisan state, the Titoist state's own objectives um, for how you know what kind of revolution it wanted to carry out in Yugoslavia, um, the Athens Charter fit in very neatly with this because um, you know the the main pillars of this were uh, industrializing. Uh, Yugoslavia um, on the Soviet model, so we're talking about heavy industry, so concentrating investment there, which meant that there were fewer resources available for um, for improving the standard of living. So a kind of a program for um, for rebuilding cities that emphasized how efficient it was and how um, you know how it was going to resolve this uh, this problem at minimal cost. That was that was obviously something that was, um, uh, that they were looking for. Um, and Yugoslavia also, um, had a promise of improving the lives of workers, right? The working class. And, uh, and so the Athens charter again promised to, um, improve, um, improve people's lives by building, you know, modern housing. And of course there's a whole modernization project around this of, of taking Yugoslavia from being essentially, a state, barely, you know, barely out of feudalism and taking it into the modern age, you know, um, and so there were just um, a lot of ways in which this program was very appealing to the to the socialist authorities. We we have no idea uh, whether, I mean, it, it seems actually quite unlikely given Tito's taste that he uh, he endorsed modernism as an aesthetic style, um, but. Um, you had first of all architects and planners who had supported the partisans during the war, and so they were obviously going to get priority in terms of um, having positions of authority after the war and you have this program that seems to to dovetail very nicely with the economic uh, objectives of the state
0: mm-hmm. So even though, in a sense, they're starting with a a clean slate in that Belgrade had um, been so destroyed during the war, they they weren't actually, um, you know, rebuilding the city in a vacuum. So there's lots of um, challenges and obstacles, and and in many cases, the result of the war, um, as well as uh, some of the things you've already described in terms of the political situation. So how did they go about actually trying to physically rebuild the city according to these principles?
1: Well, so at first, um, I mean, immediately after the war, there's a, there's kind of a focus on reconstruction. Um, And and that kind of, in many ways, went against the idea of a tabula rasa in the sense that they're trying to salvage everything that they could. And because that, that in truth was the least expensive way, way to deal with this crisis. Um, So it's really uh, only at the very uh, tail end of the 1940s that they're talking about actually um, coming up with a master plan with the city. And interestingly, uh, when they come up with the master plan, uh, they 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 tend to really kind of focus on big ideas. Um, You know, there's a utopian dimension to this. There's you know, we're talking about a time of austerity where people have to believe that a better day is arriving whether or not that was actually going to line up with the material possibilities at the time. And the easiest way to do that, uh, in fact, was not to concentrate on the city that had been destroyed, but on a very large space right next to it across the Sava River, which was a kind of a wetland. Um, it was a, a piece of land that was constantly being flooded, um, but that offered the possibility of building a new city center. And what they uh, what they decided to do is um, is to essentially drag, dredge up a whole bunch of sand from the bottom of the river and uh, pump it onto the, the, the banks of this uh, piece of land in order to raise its height, in order to prevent it from being continuously flooded. Uh, and then they begin to build some key buildings on there. Um, in particular, they build um, the uh, Federal Executive Council, or they begin to build the Federal Executive Council and a hotel Yugoslavia, a hotel where um, delegates to the Federal Executive Council would be able to, um, to stay. Um, and they build some other key infrastructure around there. They even begin to build a, um, a student, uh, student accommodations. Um, but all of this is unfortunately kind of, all, all of this grinds to a halt as a result of the Tito-Stalin split. But if you look in the master plan, you can see that there were really grand visions for what was going to, to go up on there. Um, it was, again, very much determined by um, the ideas that Le Corbusier had set out in the Athens Charter of being a very kind of scientific, rationally planned city with um, you know um, a grid pattern um, of different hierarchies of of transportation, so main roads and then uh, secondary roads. Um, at the apex, we going to be the the sort of political buildings that that um, uh, of federal Yugoslavia. So the symbolically most important location uh, was taken up by these these, these decision making bodies, um, and then you were going to have various types of um, institutions located throughout this um, this map, as well as some housing. Um, and it was, you know, it was really designed to showcase the new urban planning ideas. And that is what the uh, the master plan really focused on, was sort of celebrating the building of a brand new city center to replace the, the destroyed and somewhat decadent um, and unrebuildable old city center.
0: Mm-hmm. And then... Um- so after the split with um, Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union, the next master plan to be introduced was in 1950. And uh, there was a really interesting statement by Miwo Samborski, who was head of the Town Planning Institute. And he said that you can understand how a society functions by looking at a land use map. So what did he mean by that? And how did this um, 1950 master plan Show us how they were thinking that uh, Belgrade would function and its society would function
1: well, I mean one of the key ideas in the Athens Charter that I hadn't mentioned yet is this notion that um, an, um, a city is kind of like an organism um, that it has different kinds of um, of uh, organs if you like, um, and you you have to sort of take care as to where you situate different functions of the city uh, in order for the organism to function properly. And they identified, uh, let's see if I can remember this, um, um, leisure, working, um, and living, and then there was transportation were those four functions, if I got that right. Um, and, And the Athens Charter really kind of emphasized the notion that you shouldn't mix those different kinds of functions. You know, people should not you know, in the 19th century city, people who worked in a factory might live right next to the factory and as a result, um, you know, have to deal with pollution um, and lack of sunlight and, and, and that sort of thing. So in the in the sort of ideal city, peop- you know, you would have a particular part of the city that would be dedicated to residential uses and it would be separate from uh, industrial zones and they would, in fact, uh, be separated by a green uh, 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 kind of um, a buffer zone of greenery um, to sort of protect the residential zone from the industrial zone. So it was really this idea of organizing the city in such a way that um, that every function was separate and um, and that the connections between the functions were were rational. You know that there were roads serving those uh, those those connections and. Roads where automobiles and pedestrians, for example, would not be intersecting with one
0: another. Mm -hmm. You already mentioned that um, after the split, Yugoslavia really um, began to use this language of self-management as what made their form of socialism unique and perhaps more pure. How did the architects and planners um, also deploy that language of self-management to support their visions of um, the modernist built environment?
1: Now you're asking me about a chapter I didn't have a chance to glance through again, so I'm going to have to try to reconstruct what it was that I, I was um, talking about. I think, I think it really centered on the notion that um, self-management was about um, allowing the everyday um, worker to realize his full potential. And so there's a kind of refocusing on housing, right? As a, a sense in which the parts of the Athens Charter that really emphasized the provision of high-quality housing to workers um, takes on its full meaning, right? Whereas previously, for example, aspects of the Athens Charter, um, or Aspen's, aspects, in fact, not just of the Athens Charter, but of Le Corbusier's planning ideas in general that emphasized you know, the efficient connections between the political decision-making bodies and the, the business center or the commercial center and, um, and and you know, housing being, you know, built in a kind of logical fashion, you know, the, the kind of laying out of the city would have been uh, the emphasis, say, in the master plan. Now they're talking, they're focusing much more on the very specific issue of housing, right, and improving living conditions of the working men. So I think that that is uh, one of the critical ways in which um, urban planners make a case for the continued relevance of their planning ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. And this um, emphasis on the standard of living um, and that you already mentioned and, and this emphasis on housing... Uh, Tell us about the exhibit, A Dwelling for Our Conditions, and what we can learn from that exhibition about this um, this focus on housing and and better standard of living in the late 1950s in Yugoslavia.
1: Um, Well, so that exhibit takes place in Ljubljana, and it kind of signals a shift uh, in general in Yugoslavia towards um, an improvement in the standard of living. Um, which previously had sort of been played down in the interest of um, of industrialization and, and in the aftermath of the tito Stone split also because a lot of money needed to be directed towards the defense budget, right? But now we're in the early 1950s. Uh, a new, more optimistic time is opening up um, and Yugoslavia has decided to increase um, its investment in the standard of living and um, organizes a whole, you know, whole different kinds of ways of promoting new ideas about, um, about modern living. And this exhibition in Ljubljana is a good example of that. And there, um, there are some model um, apartments that are that are set up, model kitchens. There's an emphasis on home furnishings. Um, and the, the emphasis is really on uh, modern ideas about living, right? So um, we're talking about a society where, um, you know, the cities were growing largely because people were moving from the countryside from very traditional ways of living. And so there's there's a sense in which um, both urban dwellers who have been living in the um, in, in, in poor living conditions and urban uh, and, and rural dwellers who don't know how to live in a city can be can be brought into the modern age with these, um, these, these examples of how how to live. And so, you know, we're talking about apartments that were fairly small. Um, and so, you know, the big clunky Furniture from the countryside is not going to work, um, and we're talking about you know modern kitchens with appliances. This is also the time when they they bring in um, the first um, um, model um, supermarket from the United States and showcase convenience foods and frozen foods and and um, and try and introduce new ideas about um, about how to cook. You know, not sort of foods that need to cook all day, (laughs) but, um, you know, really what things that we associate with the 20th century in terms of, um, the idea that both men and women would work and, um, and there would be limited time to prepare, to prepare food. So, you know, this is really what's kind of highlighted and as well as I would say an attempt to, to inject, um, a little bit of glamour into people's lives. So, um, you know there there are pictures that appear about the exhibit in architecture magazines, and you can see that there's been an attempt to sort of project um, an idea of romance and of leisure into these images. Um, the, the sense that uh, that maybe the husband and wife are about to enjoy a cocktail at the end of the day, right? Uh, and I think this speaks to the, the people's uh, you know real thirst for for you know, better times and a desire to, you know, enjoy um, enjoy everything that the post-war era at that moment seems to be offering them in terms of a better life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things that really struck me as um, was, in a sense, this almost perceived civilizing mission of the built environment, mm-hmm. that um, it was indeed about, you know, sort of efficiency and convenience that people and, and health, but also that this um, kind of raising people up who may have been peasants or workers to be able to yeah. um, live, a, uh, uh, live Perfect. a better life, not just in terms of, you know, economically, but also kind of in, and how they think about life in themselves. Great, Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was really interesting. So we've been you know, talking, go ahead.
1: I'll just throw in an anecdote. That's kind of fun. I mean, when, when New Belgrade is beginning to be built, um, there are complaints of people, uh, you know, sort of raising chickens in their, uh, around the apartment buildings, um, of people hanging their laundry all over the place on the balconies, Um, you know, just a generalized kind of um, anxiety that these peasants are bringing their peasant ways to the city, right? And Mm -hmm. so a sense that there's this very urgent, There's this very urgent need to teach people how you live in in a city, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about the um, ideas behind uh, the built environment, but what actually is being built and how are the people who are now starting to move into these uh, spaces, uh, whether they're leisure spaces or living spaces or workspaces, um, what are their responses? What do they think about this, uh, these new physical um, buildings and physical environments? <coughs>
1: Um, so in the case of New Belgrade there's a great deal of effort that's put into the design of the buildings um, there are competitions for both the design of the the blocks the the um, the yeah the urban blocks in which the buildings are going to be built and the and the buildings themselves um, and so they're of a, of a high architectural quality um, in spite of the fact that of course the um, One of the central ideas of the Athens Charter is to um, to harness, you know, uh, industrial building techniques, harness the machine age to building more efficiently. Originally, uh, at first, most of the buildings are built according to very traditional um, architectural um, or you know building construction techniques. Um, Although over time, by the time we get into the late 1960s and 1970s, there, you know, we're starting to see prefabrication and, you know, design of um, uh, modular building parts that can be assembled in different ways. So that, you know, that changes over time. But originally, we're talking about very traditional building techniques. Um, But this represented a major improvement in people's standard of living. Um, You know, a lot of the people who are being rehoused um, are people who lived in slum conditions, people who um, you know, lived in homes uh, made from recycled materials without running water. Um, suddenly they had get to have an apartment with, um, you know, a, a kitchen and a bathroom <laughs> and and central heating. I mean, this, this is huge, huge for people. Um, you also, so you get two kinds of uh, populations moving and people who are being rehoused, as well as people who are actually quite privileged in Yugoslavia. So people who work for state institutions, and pe- particularly the army, and people who work for firms that make um, significant profits and therefore um, are able to invest in housing for their workers. And so you get this very kind of um, polarized population inhabiting, you know, a, a large part of, um, of the Yugoslav working class is left out of this project simply because the companies that they work for don't turn enough of a profit to be able to um, offer significant amounts of housing. And what housing they do have, they tend to give to skilled workers that
0: they want to keep. Yeah, so this is, um, it seems like it's working, and yet by 1964, there um, was kind of a backlash uh, against these housing blocks. And that there started to be um, complaints about building these big, you know, kind of high-rise tower apartment blocks. So what what was the problem? What, what now by the early sixties turn against this uh, structure of housing?
1: Um, so there there's a number of things that are happening. <clears throat> Places like New Belgrade were never perfect. They were always uh, beset by some challenge or another. So in the early period, it was the fact that there was um, so little housing that was built that oftentimes um, more than one family was being forced to share to uh, a single apartment together. So that was completely subverting the very idea of teaching people how to live a cultured life and improving their standard of living, right, when families have to share a bathroom or you know, there's one family that whose whose space that they've been assigned to is the bathroom, <laughs> right? Um, and then later, the problem is going to be that there's such an emphasis on building housing that the construction of housing happens at a much faster pace than anything else. So schools, um, any kind of shopping, um, post office, anything, um, health, um, you know, health clinics. You know, New Belgrade is a desert in that sense. It's, it's In fact, people start referring to it as a kind of a, um, a dormitory city, a place where you go to sleep. There's nothing else to do there. Um, there are also complaints about the quality of the workman, uh, workmanship, so windows falling out. Um, you know, Bill sometimes complaints also about buildings being poorly designed with, uh, say, a pillar running through your living room. So there are always challenges in New Belgrade. Um, but the interesting thing is that uh, in the 1960s, you begin to get challenges uh, that are different, challenges that, that, uh, that, that get at the very idea of the kind of, um, the kind of neighborhoods that were being created, right? Not simply complaints about how housing was being distributed or the quality of the housing, but the idea that the, the, the very urban planning model was flawed, Um, some of that actually comes from, uh, planners and architects themselves who have had a chance to build, um, these settlements for a while now and are looking at them and they're finding them wanting, you know, they're, they're looking at them and then they look at old neighborhoods and they say, why, why is there nowhere here for people to gather? Or, you know, we, we've actually designed places for people to gather, but they don't gather in them. Why? Why is that? What's wrong? Why do these places seem boring? Um, why do we not get a sense of community here? Um, and they 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 kind of you know really focus their discussion on the idea of what they call ambient, um, or the idea of a kind of um, an, maybe an ambiance, a, a sense, a, a kind of quality of uh, personality and um, and and positive uh, community spirit that 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 is lacking. And they you know they they talk about how how you might change designs in order to, to foster that kind of thing. But at the same time as they're trying to um, reconsider and maybe reinvent these kinds of settlements, um, the press and uh, a number of social scientists are launching vitriolic uh, attacks on these settlements, um, calling them places that foster delinquency um, uh, claiming that living in high rises actually uh, deteriorate is, is bad for your health. Um, talking about, um, in general, the idea that no one should live in these settlements, that they're flawed, um, and that uh, you know we need to we need to get rid of this kind of um, of urban planning uh, concept and this kind of housing.
0: Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about the rise of social scientists as uh, a powerful force around urban planning in the 1960s. What caused that? What brought that about?
1: Uh, I think that this is is not just in Yugoslavia. I think this is a global phenomenon. Um, And part of it is actually rooted in the evolution of urban planning as a discipline, um, a sense that it wasn't something that uh, was merely technical and therefore that architects could do, but that urban planning was uh, was also about understanding how societies function, and therefore you had to bring economists and sociologists um, and various other kinds of social scientists into the conversation about how they should be designed. Um, and I think, you know, at this time, um, again, Globally, there is a deep anxiety about um, society sort of fragmenting, a sense of a a lack of cohesion or a kind of um, um, uh, how to explain it, um, that the bonds between people are disintegrating. Right. Um, And of course, sociologists in Yugoslavia are reading sociology being produced in the United States and being produced in Europe. And, um, and so they're kind of attuned to these kinds of anxieties and applying it in their own context. And, of course, Yugoslavia, since the uh, Second World War, has been undergoing profound transformations, right? And so a, a sense that society is changing and that the bonds between people um, are, are being uh, dissolved or, or are not, ex- or, or not in place, um, that, that is very much something that you can see reflected in Yugoslav society. Um, and like in, you know, the rest of the world, there is a, a very easy um, scapegoat for all of this. And that is um, if, you know, if these neighborhoods are dysfunctional, it must be because of the buildings, right? These, this is the kind of critique that is also being leveled in France, um, in Germany, in the UK, uh, and uh, in various other places.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the responses to um, the Need for housing, but also these the growing expectation for um, higher standards of living is um, what you call rogue construction. So, who were these rogue people, and what were they constructing? Right. So, the majority of
1: people involved in rogue, what I call rogue construction, um, are um, people who come to Belgrade to work. And uh, most of them, I would say, work either in transportation or in the construction sector. These are unskilled workers um, working in um, in in economic sectors that are not uh, that are not pro- you know highly profit profitable. And as a result, they are they are unable to secure housing through the regular channels. Um, and there, you know, because because there's a lot of these people in Belgrade, um, all of the housing that's available privately, um, you know, spare rooms, basements, um, all of it is going at exorbitant prices. And so a lot of people decide to deal with this simply by finding a piece of land somewhere on the periphery of the city and just building a house. Um, and it um, it sort of appears in the beginning of the 60s and uh, starts to take on epidemic proportions. It becomes such a big issue that the city council returns to it time after time, trying to figure out how to deal with this problem. Um, And it's problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, because it uh, it reproduces these kind of um, uh, low-quality living conditions that the city is trying to do away with in the first place. People are also building on sites that have been determined to have been assigned to build, you know, big buildings. And suddenly they can't do it because people have built a shack. (laughs) Um, And um, in general, there's a sense that um, that this is symptomatic of the the kind of the failure of the of the housing uh, provision system. Right. Uh, And that something needs to be done about it. And so the question is, you know, what, what can we do? We can't, we clearly aren't building fast enough and we aren't building cheaply enough that we can provide these people with housing. So what do we do about it? Um, and, you know, these people seem to be really good at fixing their own problem. And so um, the municipal authorities end up um, devising the solution. Well, why don't we allow them to build their housing but, but designate parcels that are appropriate for that and have oversight over the construction so that it meets minimal standards, right? Um, alongside this kind of um, this, this, this emerging crisis and the emerging solution to the crisis, there is a growing sense that maybe uh, people are building houses not just because they have to, but because they want to live in a house, right? And um, and and shouldn't we allow people the opportunity to live in the kind of housing that they want? And this this argument becomes particularly potent because of market reforms that happened in the mid nineteen sixties that are trying to make the construction sector more efficient by really stimulating competition, right? By uh, by essentially. Um, uh, directing that housing construction will no longer just be financed through um, through um, the financed through the the mechanism of workers setting aside uh, a part of their income and then their their firm essentially uh, building you know, um, buying buildings and then distributing it to workers, but that they want uh, firms, in fact, to compete with one another for business. Um, Firms will continue buying from them, but so can individuals buy their own apartments, right? Um, And there's this whole notion of trying to stimulate consumption of housing in order to make the housing sector more efficient. And therefore, if people people want is single-family homes, then uh, shouldn't we try to accommodate that, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is definitely a major challenge to the urban planning model that they had adopted uh, until that point, which privileged this kind of high-density, high-rise construction um, over this kind of American model of, of urban sprawl, you know, of, of single-family housing with each house having its own yard and that sort of mm-hmm. thing.
0: And indeed, in 1966, the Belgrade municipal officials hired Wayne State University to complete a land use transportation study as the basis for a new mastered plan. So why did they turn to the United States? Um, why um, use these American um, planners to uh, assist them in this new planning process? And what, what was the new, um, I guess, the new vision that came out of this?
1: Yeah, um, and one of the things that I should say is that urban planners were kind of opposed to this, um, this notion of catering to people's wish for single-family homes, right? Um, based on the notion that Yugoslavia's material possibilities, you know, the, the, the wealth of the country could not actually support single-family housing, that people could not actually afford single-family housing. Um, And so, um, you know, it's not that they actually come to emulate the American model. If anything, um, this is a trend, again, that's that goes beyond Yugoslavia, a sense that um, that the United States um, was really at the forefront of the crisis of of the modern city. Right. That due to the um, the the growth of automobile usage Um, and uh, and urban sprawl that resulted from that, that the Americans were way ahead of everyone else in having these problems, and therefore that they were way ahead of everyone else in trying to find solutions for these problems. Um, Urban planners in Yugoslavia by the mid-1960s are really kind of facing a bit of of a crisis of legitimacy. This urban planning model that they'd been promoting for a while had been somewhat successful, but was increasingly being challenged by social scientists, by popular demand for single-family housing, by um, municipal authorities' willingness to, to sort of cave in to you know this this road construction uh, pressure, and they needed to find a way to kind of reassert their legitimacy. And so when um, when time ta- when it comes time to do a new master plan, um, they they are. Wanting to sort of, um, you know, adopt the most contemporary, the most cutting edge uh, methodologies and technologies in order to deal with with uh, Belgrade's problems, which, by the way, go beyond this housing issue to, for example, um, again, you know, automobile usage explodes in Yugoslavia as well. And so they have problems with a uh, transportation and Wayne State University in Detroit is at the forefront of, um, of sort of testing out new computer modeling technologies um, in, in, um, in developing land use um, models. That's why ultimately they turn to Wayne State University. Um, they hire um, several consultants from the university to train them how to use um, these computers, these, you know, Computers from the late 1960s, which take up an entire room and use these uh, cards, right? Um, they, they hire these people to teach them how to use this technology in order to to, um, to develop a new master plan. And the idea, uh, which is very different than the idea that, um, that they, they, they were working with in the 1950s, in the 1950s, it was really what I call blueprint planning. The idea that they could imagine... the city that they wanted and put it into practice by the 1970s they don't believe that anymore now they believe that the only thing that they can do is attempt to to shape existing trends you know that they can they can manage the pressures that are acting on the city and that's why computer modeling is 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 well suited to this because the idea is to try and uh, input all this information about all the trends that were taking place in the city and get a sense of how different decisions would would lead to different outcomes. Mm-hmm.
0: Throughout the book you talk about the relationship between modernism as a um, particular point of view uh, or way of approaching the built environment and modernization. And so what do you think we can learn from this case study of Belgrade about post-war Europe, about urban planning, about these visions for how societies should be shaped?
1: Um that's a big question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I mean the, the key the key lesson for me as regards the relationship between modernism and modernization was that modernism was a very specific modernization project right and that it had its heyday in Yugoslavia precisely because it was in line with ideas about modernization about what you know what what it meant to modernize Yugoslavia that it that modernizing Yugoslavia was about you know investing uh, resources as efficiently as possible it was about using scientific methodologies or supposedly scientific methodologies that, um, that it was about bringing in, um, you know, it was sort of bringing the society in line with the machine age, um, that it was about improving standards of living, right? So there's an egalitarian, uh, project there. Um, so, you know, at the moment in time when these objectives made sense, uh, modernism was a, a really potent um, concept that really found its place in Yugoslav society, but but it kind of sowed the seeds of its own destruction because as, as society in Yugoslavia did modernize, according to this program, people's aspirations changed, right? Um, and uh, the notion that... The, the state would, um, would play this kind of overarching role in providing for people and in directing society fell to the side in favor of this notion that people should be, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the, the consumer making choices, um, you know, became much more powerful. And so, um, you know, at, at, by the late 1960s, the modernist moment had passed in Yugoslavia. Um, And, you know, it kind of coincided also with the the sort of the increasing, you know, uh, centripetal forces that were pulling Yugoslavia apart at the time. And so it's hard to say, um, you know, what, what followed, because, because what followed was really the beginning of the end of
0: Yugoslavia. Wow. And uh, that's, a good point to end um, our conversation about this book, which I, again, found really fascinating and looking at all of these um, post-war, um, social, economic, ideological um, aspects of Yugoslavia through the built environment. So thank you for that. And thank you for having this conversation with me today and uh, about the book. And I'd like to close by asking what you're working on now.
1: Um, well, I'm working on two projects. Um, one of the projects uh, actually spun out a little bit of this first project, and um, it's on migrant workers from Yugoslavia in Western Europe um, during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And um, the connection there is that uh, when some of this uh, some of this road construction that was taking place when I when I asked about it, people would say. Oh, that was uh, a guest that invited, a migrant worker from germany who who built that house. And so I became really intrigued about these people who um, who were working in Western Europe, but clearly continued to feel as Yugoslav citizens because they came home and um, and invested their money in building a house in Yugoslavia. Um and so i'm I'm sort of investigating the nature of that relationship between those workers living abroad for very long periods of time and Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia as an idea, Yugoslavia as, um, as a place and Yugoslavia as, um, as a a state. Um, And my second project, which um, so the labor migrant project, I'm I'm wrapping up at the moment. and, And my second project I've recently begun deals with another city, the city of Rijeka, which um, had been a Habsburg city, um, the main port of the Hungarian part of the Habsburg Empire, in fact. And um, in 1924 becomes part of Italy, and then after the Second World War becomes part of Yugoslavia. And I'm interested in how this border change after the Second World War impacted the city of Rijeka. Uh, In particular, I'm interested in the notion of, you know, how borders... uh, what impact borders have on reconfiguring cities as a result of their re-embedding in different networks, right? New and different networks, trade networks, transportation networks, um, you know, new flows of, of people, of goods, of ideas. Um, and so um, in, in sort of in tandem with that, I'm also working on, a, on a, an interactive historical map, uh, which is internet-based and crowdsourced, um, and onto which people can, um, can input their memories of the city of Rijeka at various moments in time. So um, sort of venturing into the digital humanities and, you know, what, what does it mean to crowdsource history and historical knowledge?
0: Wow, that's a really exciting project, and I look forward to um, having the chance to see that, um, both the, the scholarly work, but also this crowdsource interactive map. And uh, hopefully in the future, we will have a chance to talk to you about one or both of those uh, projects um, on the New Books Network um, podcast series. But again, thank you very much for your time today. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about this book.
1: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.